Three short stories. First one is by far, ironically, not so short compared to the other two. Three short, three short stories that demonstrate how God can change those who are in darkness with disabilities and those who are just plain old dead. We see, first of all, the first short story here in Acts chapter 9, the disciple of Damascus Road. And we see this story broken up into three separate acts. In Act 1, we see very dramatically that God calls out Saul. Starting here in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. Remember, who was just in Damascus? Remember that from last week? His name was what? Philip. Philip had taken the gospel. And now Paul is following along here. And so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. You see, despite Paul's past, present, or future actions, God still chose to call him out. Look at verse 1 here. You see this, this, you see this intention from Saul here, and we see essentially the nutshell of Paul's life in one verse. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord... What does that still suggest to you, that he's been doing what? He's already been doing this for a little bit, hasn't he? So he's still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest, and here's what he's looking to do in the present. He's asking him for letters of the synagogues at Damascus. And you know what Paul's looking to do? If he found any belonging to the, to the way, this is, this is a, a summary of, of those who are followers of Jesus following this gospel Men or women, what would Paul want to do? Bring them bound to Jerusalem. So in this one, these two verses, you see Paul's past. He, he's still breathing out. You see Paul's present. He's asking in this moment. But you also see Paul's future. He's looking so that if he finds anyone else, he's going to bring them in with the rest of the people he's brought in. And you know what Paul's intention is with those people who are following in the way? He wants to kill them. Just... Just let that sit there for a moment. Here's a man that looked at people like you and like me, and you know what he wanted to do? Kill us. Not, not a great guy. Okay, I just want to make sure we understand who we're talking about here. Not a great guy. So despite Paul's past, present, or future actions, God still calls him out. Because what we find here in verse 3 is that on this road to Damascus, as he's approaching, as he's literally carrying out this intention to kill people, what happens? Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And despite his past, present, and future action, God calls him out. And specifically we find that God calls him by his name. It says in verse 4, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Can you imagine that? I, I mean, like, just imagine this moment. I've never heard a voice speak out of the heaven, and all of a sudden this dude 
his whole life is arrested by this light that shines down on him. It halts him in his tracks, and he hears a voice saying to him, Saul, calling him by his name, says, why are you persecuting me? And out of probably a natural response, he said, Paul says, who are you, Lord? And listen to the response here. He says, I am who? Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I want you to understand the significance of this. Paul's entire life had been spent in his mind, doing exactly what he thought was righteous. In the book of Philippians, Paul details that he was essentially like, if you're going to have like a star of Jewish people, that, that's Paul. On pedigree, on performance, everything about Paul's life, according to him, was designed to please his God. So think about this. In that one moment, God calls out Saul by name and says, why are you persecuting me? So literally all of Paul's life, his actions, his intentions are now placed in jeopardy. I want you to think about this though. Albeit our calling looks different than Saul's. The principle remains the same. That those who belong to God have been called out by him, by name. Consider with me for a moment, like, our desire to be seen and known. Like, I think that's intrinsically in all of us. Like, whenever you go, I was thinking about last night, there are a couple of new families that are relatively new to Bay Cities, and, and they came to this bonfire. And there's always that awkward moment at parties when if you don't know someone there, or maybe, like, you just get there and you're there a little bit early, and you don't know, like, like who you're going to talk to. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe I'm the only one that experienced I see some kind of smirks. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, that desire to be seen and known. It's one of the best things when you go to a place that, that like, you're not unfamiliar with, and you know, okay, at least I go th if I go there, there's that one person I know. And there's comfort when you're seen and known by that person, right? You, you ever have that experience? Like when you're at a party or you're at like a work function and you're like, man, I sure hope Sally's there. Wait, is that one even named Sally anymore? I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, I, I sure hope, you know, I sure hope, I sure hope John's there. I sure hope that person's there. Why? Because we all value being seen and known. I want you to think about this. God sees and knows you. And he still wants you. Think about that. God saw and knew all of Saul. He said, why are you persecuting me? Like, he knows exactly all of Paul past actions, present intention, and future purposes. And what does Paul, excuse me, what does Jesus say to Saul? Why are you doing this? What are you doing? However, Jesus doesn't turn Saul away. He actually calls him out by name because he wants him. And what we find here is that he calls out Saul despite by his name, but also here with the process. And this is what's interesting. Look at verse 8. He says, 
But, excuse me, we'll start in verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were open, it says he saw what? He saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for how long? Three days he was without sight and neither ate or drank. You see, the way God works in our lives is completely up to him. Like we often think that, that we, I think, I think we often think that we have a say or a control of what life looks like. But think about this. Think about Saul for a moment. He's literally doing what he thought God wanted him to do. He literally is like pursuing God's plan in his mind for his life. And what does God do? He shines a light down from heaven. He speaks to him directly. He causes him to be blind. And then he goes into the city and he waits for three days and three nights, not eating, not able to see. Do you think that made sense to Paul? Now I want you to think about this. God may be working in your life or in someone's life around you. And it may not make sense, does it? Like God has his own prerogatives and he's going to do exactly what he's going to do. But I've got good news. God is using everything and every moment for his good, but also yours as well. When you look at what's happening here with Saul, was he someone that by his actions, was worthy to be called out by God? Yes or no? He's a murderer. Was he someone that God was pleased with how he was living? But God still chose to call Saul by name, despite his past, and with a process. Now, why is that process important? Because God is transforming Saul to be used by him, and God's going to do what God wants to do. So right now in your life, you may be going through a process of God working that doesn't quite make sense. But you have to understand, God does what he wants to do exactly when he wants to do it for who he wants to do it for. But that's a good thing, because we're going to find out here that God just doesn't call out sinners. God even calls out saints. We find in Act 2 of this first short story that God doesn't call out Saul. God calls out Ananias. Look at verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, um, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. You see, God calls out Ananias for a pretty unusual task. Now, God calls Ananias to to a responsibility that may not make sense to him. But listen to this. God calls Ananias to to a task that will literally start a movement that changes the world around him. God, in this moment, may be calling you to an unusual task that doesn't make sense. However, God is going to use this unusual task in your life 
to potentially change the world where you live and where you work and where you play. Maybe you're suffering through a sickness right now, and you're wondering, all right, Lord, what, what is going on? Maybe you're struggling in your vocation, and you're asking God, why am I here? What am I doing? Maybe you're enduring through parenting, and every day you're waking up and thinking, I just want to go back to bed. Maybe it's in a relationship that there's fighting, there's turmoil. And you're looking at your life and you're asking God, I don't understand this process or this task in front of me. I'm not sure how you're working. But we have to understand, is God sovereign? Is God good? Does God know what he's doing? The survey says, so we have to obey and trust. Now, even though God calls out Ananias for an unusual task, Ananias doesn't quite respond maybe the way he ought to have. Because God still calls out Ananias for his, this task despite his objections. Look at verse 13. It says, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You see, Ananias objects to Jesus' directive that he should visit Saul. Now, despite the fact that he objects, Ananias acknowledges the lordship of Jesus in his address. However, how can he dare object what God is asking him to do? Like, think about this. God comes to Ananias and says, I want you to go do something. And, like, you would think that if God is speaking to you directly, you'd be like, what? Okay, God, whatever you want. But what does Ananias say? You know that dude? <laughs> like, you see what he's been able to do? Like, you know what he's doing right now? Like, Ananias doubts that God is in control and that God has the capability to do what God called him to do. And I wonder, I wonder how frequently God calls us to obey him and we object. Like, I wonder how frequently that we're reading in God's word or we're here gathered and God speaks to us about something and we're like, oh, I don't know, God. Like, just think about that. Like, how ignorant are we? Like, this is the God of all creation calling us to obey. And we're like, uh, can I take a TV timeout? Like, we're like, I don't know, God. Like, last night after the bonfire, came home and um, put, I put Nolan down. And all of a sudden, I heard, uh, like, some noise in Nolan's room. And, and I opened the door. And, and Nolan is... Uh, playing with the toy right in front of the door, and I open it, and he has that look on his face. You, if you're a parent, you know what look that is. It's like the look of, like, I'm caught. And, like, he kind of, you can see he starts, like, like he's, he's starting to almost cry, and he goes, Dad, what I tell you? Don't open my door. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking at him, and I'm wanting to laugh. I mean, like, you know, it's funny. Okay? It's funny. But I'm like, wait. You don't tell dad what to do. And looks at me again. Dad, what I tell you? <laughs> don't open my door. I was like, get in bed right now. Like we as parents, when our kids 
Like, when our kids come up to us and they tell us, like, what they want to do, like, we're like, we ain't having it, right? Like, if you're a parent in here and you've had experience, mom, you never had this, right? Uh, you, you have this experience where your kid comes to you and they're like, I'm not doing it that way. Like, as parents, we're like, you know, we all, like, huffy puffy. Like, how could you? How dare you? I'm your mother and father. And, like, you know, we get on this tyrant. But you think about this. How frequently do we tell God no? How frequently do we object to obeying the commands of God? Like we know what's best. Like we know what's good. God is telling Ananias to go do something that, yes, is unusual, right? I mean, like I've never been told to go lay hands on a dude who is blind and who used to kill people. I've never experienced that. And my guess is probably y'all haven't either. But when we understand the blessing that God is preparing for Ananias. Think about Ananias' story. He's the guy who knew the guy, right? He's the guy that God used to literally start a movement that would change the world. I'm not saying God has an unusual task for you that if you fulfill it, you're going to change the world. But you never know. I mean, think about this. Like, Ananias was pumping the brakes on what God had asked him to do, but God was giving Ananias a unique opportunity to obey and be a part of a movement that would literally change the world around us. And think about it. It did. Here we are, 2,000 years later, in, in this short story about the disciple of Damascus Road. Guess who we're talking about? Ananias. Because he obeyed. And God despite his objections, gave Ananias boldness. Look at verse 17. It says, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. God gives Ananias the boldness to walk into the room with a killer. With a killer. And not just any killer, a killer of Christians so that the purposes of God would be fulfilled on this earth. God could have called out anybody to do this task, but he chose Ananias to be a part of the story. Now think about this. How could God use you to be a part of his unfolding purposes in the world around you? Maybe there is right now a coworker on your mind that you think there's no way that person could ever be saved. There's no way that person could ever be transformed. Maybe it's a neighbor and you're like, not that neighbor. I, I don't know about him. Maybe that neighbor or that neighbor, but not that guy right there. Maybe there's a family member that you're like, Lord, you know, Uncle Fred, he could never be saved. Maybe it's a coach of one of your kids. Maybe it's a former high school friend. Maybe it's a mom in the park with you. You see, God's glory is ready to break through in this earth as we bear and share the good news of Jesus. And I realize it may be intimidating, it may be fearful, but think about this. If God gave Ananias the boldness to go into the room of a killer... I don't think God has called us to do what Ananias did, right? But 
can God give us the boldness to go across the street? Can God give us the boldness to go across the cubicle? Can God give us the boldness to call up that friend from high school? Just so you know, the answer is yes. <laughs> he can. He can. And he will. Don't object. If God is bringing something to mind, that's why we gave you those prayer journals. We wanted you through the month of February as God is bringing people to mind to start writing them down. Because God could use you, just like Ananias, to start a movement where literally the world where you live and where you work and where you play is changed. And how cool would that be? How cool would it be if months from now we're sitting in a room and there are people in this room that on this day, February the 17th of 2019, God brought to your mind. And we see those people saved and baptized and part of a family that they never would have thought existed. And you never thought they could have been a part. I mean, how awesome would that be? That's how the glory of God shines most brightly on this earth. When people who are called out by name, even despite objections, despite their past, God to use to bear the good news of Jesus. Act one, God calls out Saul. Act two, God calls out Ananias. Act three of this first short story is God sends out Saul. And this is where it really starts to pick up. You see, God sends out Saul to Damascus, proving the deity of Jesus. Look at verse 20. It says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. But I love this about Saul. And immediately, what did he do? He proclaimed Jesus, where? In the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. Now, if you can imagine, look at verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who call upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? Like Paul, because the gospel is so transformational, he's literally in a moment completely changed. And what does he do? He goes and tells people about this Jesus who changed him. And it's so crazy and it's so new that the people around are like, wait, wasn't that the guy? Like, wasn't that the guy who killed people who talked about Jesus? But because this gospel is so transformational... Literally, it's took, it took someone who was in darkness and now has brought them to the light. It says, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, if you can imagine, this probably didn't go over too well. <laughs> because he was just on the other side of the coin with his other Jewish buddies who were killing these people. So guess what happens? They're like, we're going to kill Paul, or Saul, excuse me. He says in verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. The, rolls had, the tables have been turned. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, we think, man, like, this was such a cool thing that God was using Saul for here in Damascus. Does God have a plan? Yeah, absolutely. You see, God sent out Saul first to Damascus to prove that Jesus is truly God. But then we find that Paul is now sent to Jerusalem to show the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 26. And we had come to Jerusalem. He attempted to join the disciples. But guess what? They're all afraid of him. <laughs> 
for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, this is where it's really cool. I'm going to take a little side note here. But Barnabas. Now, do you all remember Barnabas from like uh, about three or four weeks ago? You all remember Barnabas? What did Barnabas do that had such an impact on this new church? you remember what he did? Anyone remember? He sold some land, and what did he do with the proceeds? He gave it generously. Barnabas is now reintroduced into this narrative of God's advancing gospel. Look what Barnabas does. He steps out for a brother, and it says, And Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who had spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. And guess what Paul Saul was still doing? Preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Only a sovereign God could write this story. This doesn't make sense to us, does it? Like when we see killers today, we think their life is done. They don't deserve a future. They belong in prison forever. But God here chooses through his sovereignty to take a man who killed the very people that we would have loved. And God uses this man to boldly preach the name of the Lord. This isn't an accident. This is called the sovereignty of God. And every day, and every conversation, and everything that you do, you know who's sovereignly working? God. Does it always make sense? Like when you read this story, the disciple of Damascus Road, does it make sense? Yes or no? No. Humanly speaking, that God would do this? With this person, the same way that God worked here is how God still works today. Calls people and he sends them out to bear the good news of Jesus where they live and where they work and where they play. Paul goes to Damascus. He goes to Jerusalem. But he also goes to Tarsus. And when we find Paul going to Tarsus, we see this greater revealed plan that God has established. Look at verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. If you remember back to, if you remember back to the very first message that we preached in this series about Acts 1.8, Jesus gave to his disciples a scope and a sequence for the advance of the gospel. It would start in Jerusalem. It would go to Judea and Samaria, and it would go where? To the uttermost parts of the world. What we find right in front of us here is God doing exactly what he said he would do. But he's doing it in the, sometimes, I think, some of the most unusual ways calling out a killer, calling out someone who was in opposition to him to be used to see the church built up and multiplied. You see, God continues to do his prerogatives and his purposes despite our best objections. And he even uses the most unusual characters. And I think I'm a grand testimony of that. If God can use me God can absolutely use you. And God can use you like he used Saul, like he used Ananias, to be a part of a movement where the world around you is changed. 
Don't y'all want to be a part of that? Like, we like to be a part of things, right? We, like, we, we belong to groups, clubs, cliques, you name it. We love to be a part of things. How about getting excited to be a part of a movement where literally the world is changed around you? That's what God called Saul to. That's what God called Ananias to. And I've got news. That's what God has called you to as well. The disciple of Damascus Road is a story that is unlike ours in many ways. But the principle remains the same. God's going to call you by name and send you out to bear the good news of Jesus. Story one done. Story two, let's go. Story two is the disabled, the disabled in desperate need. And these next two stories are very quick because what we're seeing is that God has a gospel that can change those who are in darkness, those who are disabled, and those who frankly are just plain old dead. Here's the story of the disabled in desperate need. We find here in Act 1 of this story that we find that beds are made. Look at verse 32. It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he's just going about obeying what God wanted to, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for how long? Think about that. This dude has been in bed for how long? Like, you can only imagine his condition, right? It's probably not pretty. He's probably very physically weak. Matter of fact, it says he was paralyzed. Verse 34, and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and what? I think about that. I, I, I find some, I find some like, humor and irony in this. It, obviously, when Peter tells him to rise and make his bed, he's not just literally telling him, you haven't made your bed yet today. Because has the dude been out of bed for eight years? No, okay? Like when our kids get up in the morning, we say, hey, first thing you do, get up and make your beds. We're mean parents, I know. But here's the point. Peter's not just merely saying, hey, you, you ought to straighten up that bed. You've been sitting in it for eight years. He's calling him. To experience what only God can do is to take someone who was lame, bedridden for eight years, and cause him to do what? Get up. And look what verse 34 says. And immediately he what? This is what the power of God does. It takes those who are in spiritual darkness and brings them into light, but it also has the ability to take those who are physically disabled and make them whole again. Now, this type of work that we witness here in Acts, I'm suggesting is not normative today, and let me tell you why. The gospel was going to boundaries and lands that had, it had never been before. So there needed to be an authenticating witness to this word. I'm not suggesting the Spirit can't do miraculous things today. However, I don't believe this is normative. But let me say this. Does God fully intend to make all things new? Yes or no? Yes. So does God still have every intention through the transformational gospel to restore us to our original created design? Yes or no? Yes. So even though it may look a little different today... I don't think that ought to change how we talk and hope and believe in God. 
We see the power of God has the ability to make beds, but also to change lives. Look what it says in verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw this bedridden man who just rose up, and guess what they did? They turned to the Lord. We've talked about this the past couple of weeks. When we see signs and wonders, those signs and wonders that we see here in Acts are basically, I'm suggesting, how God uses unusual circumstances to point people to him and to show others what he's like. God still uses today his people to point others to him and to show others what God is like. It may look different. But the transformational gospel can still change us in ways that, that are truly unexplainable. Because when God does something in this manner, we find that people are turned to the Lord. Because God is using this physical healing ultimately to point towards spiritual regeneration. Regeneration. So I think when we see unusual circumstances that we're praying for God to work in, let me suggest how we should pray. I think we should pray like this. Lord, if this sickness or this trouble or this difficulty is designed to bring people to you through a dramatic healing or an unusual answer, then let me or whoever patiently endure so that many can see your transformational gospel now in the days to come. That should be our prayer. It doesn't dismiss the fact that God can do what God wants to do, because we know that's the case. However, it puts us in a position to say, God, it's your prerogative. It's your plan. It's your ability. So even if I have to remain bedridden for eight years so that you can gloriously heal me so that the gospel would go forward, I'll wait. I'll wait. And does anyone like waiting? No. But when we put ourselves in the sovereign plan of God to let God do what God wants to do, think about the good that came when that man rose up and made his bed. Literally, people all around turn to God, and God may be putting you in a situation where you're asking God, how long? God, how long? And he's going to use that trial, that illness, that circumstance to turn many to him. You see, God can change those who are in darkness, those who are disabled, and even those who are dead. We see in this final short story the death of Dorcas. What a name. What a name. The death of Dorcas. Verse 36, we see a call of desperation. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. She was a sweet woman, but what happened? She became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men urging him, please come to us without delay. Think about this. They're desperate. Their beloved friend has died. But they know what? That God can do what only God can do. Like this person was dead. But they're like, bring Peter. We still believe that God can raise someone from the dead. They have faith like a child for God to do what only God can do. 
we see this call of desperation, and there's a call for restoration. Verse 39, so Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And guess what the scene was like? All the widows stood beside him weeping, showing tunics and other garments that this sweet lady Dorcas had made while she was with them. And I love it here because Peter doesn't even bat an eye. He's seen Jesus raise people from the dead. He's seen Jesus come back from the dead. Peter's been used to heal. And guess what he says? He puts them all outside. He kneels down and prays. He turns to the body of this woman and he says what? The same words he said to that bedridden man. Get up. Arise. And guess what happens? She opened her eyes. She was dead, but she's now what? Who has the power to do this? Only God. So guess what? There's a call for celebration. Peter says in verse 41, he gives her his hand and raises her up. And he calls the saints and widows, and guess what he does? He presents her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And guess what happens through the work and power of God? It's not just this physical restoration that God is interested in. It's our complete being, and many believed in the Lord. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be in that room and to see someone who is dead to walk out alive? Wouldn't that be unbelievable? Like, I'm sure all of us have been to a funeral before. And I guarantee not once any one of us expected that dead corpse to get up. Like, can you imagine, I mean, like, I'm not trying to be crude here, but can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine what that would be like if you're in, uh, like in the, the, the viewing room or you're at the funeral home and, and all of a sudden, pop, that, that dude pops up? <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be crazy house. Like there'd be at first shock and awe, but then there'd probably be excitement, right? Because this person who was dead is now what? I want you to think about this. God today still has the power to change lives. And albeit that he's not changing lives in this fashion, he, however, is still taking every single day someone who is dead and making them alive. And God can use you to be an instrument to bring that good news to someone where you live or where you work or where you play. And think about the joy we should have when someone comes and says, I was dead, but now I'm alive. We would go crazy if it happened in our funeral home. Why should we not have that same joy when someone says, I now believe in Jesus, Ephesians 2, I was dead, but God, through his grace and mercy, has, has now made me alive. This is the joy that we possess. This is how God can change the world around us, by using you to share with someone the good news that God has a transformational gospel. Three short stories that witness to us how God can change those who are dead, how those who are disabled, how those who are in darkness. So let me ask you this. Is there anything impossible for God? Okay, all of you are like, no, 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 no. Are you living that way? Like, are you living with the expectation that God can do exactly what God wants to do? 
Like, I think about how Nolan runs to me uninhibited and just asks me for anything. Because he truly believes that not just I will, but I can get it for him. I can do it for him. And there's a sweet joy in that, isn't there? And just because I say no to many of the things that he asks, does that mean I don't love him? Does that mean I don't have what's best in mind for him? You see, God offers to us this wonderful picture in these three short stories that darkness nor disability, not even death, can hold back the power of God. What do we have to fear? What is there to worry about? Like, is life really too difficult that we can't live with an expectant joy that God's going to break into our lives and do what only he can do? I mean, think about this. If we don't have joy, who does? Like, if we're not filled with the goodness and love of God, who is? Paul here is an example, and Peter as well, of people who believed the promises of God and lived accordingly. And literally the world around them was changed. I'm longing for that experience in my life and your life as well. I really am. I've been praying for this about every single day, multiple times a day, that God would grab our hearts with stories like this to see how God is working in the world and continues to work today and that we would be so captivated by his transformational gospel and we would be so inspired by these stories that darkness nor disability nor death can stop the prerogatives of God and as this gospel has gone and continues to go that God would call all of us who are his by name to be used for his glory and his purposes like I want that just to man this like get us I want that to be what excites us that you are seen and known and loved and accepted by a God who created all things, has made all things for him, through him, and by him. And he still wants you for him. There ain't no one like that. Like, I love y'all, but I don't love you like that. I love my kids, but I don't love them like that. I get tired, frustrated, angry. I get all of that. But God still chooses to love you despite your past, despite your present, even knowing your future. Like, if anything should change us, let these three short stories that show that God's transformational gospel cannot be stopped, let that change you. And when we leave today, leave with hope, leave with joy, leave with family, leave with community, leave knowing that God wants to use you where you live and where you work and where you play to bring the good news of Jesus to reach every street so that one day we will be a part of a world where there will be no more night, there will be no more need for, for a sun or a moon and because God will be the light in that place. That's what we long for. That's what we have faith in. And that's what we can leave today joyful with. Amen. As you can see, I was excited this morning. But let me tell you why I'm excited. Because this is real. This isn't fake. This is real. It can change us. And, man, can you imagine what, like what 
Dallas and Hillsborough, Tampa, Clearwater, Oldsmar. What, what these cities would look like if we just leaned into this. Like, oh man. Like the neighborhood, our, 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 our places of, of, of work, where we go to school. Like think about the joy that could come. God would use, would so use us to bear that good news. That neighbor, that coworker, that family member, there's hope. There's hope. There really is. And if you're wondering if there is, like just look in the mirror. <laughs> there's hope for you. There's hope for them. Father, we are so, so thankful for what you're doing. We're so, so thankful for how you've blessed. Just a minute, we're going to sing. I'm going to invite the team up here this morning to, to play one last song for us.